carries. The rest of us are going to take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We're moving along here. When we get through with the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to do something a little different than what we've been doing as far as expository preaching. I want to go into a series of lessons on the Holy Spirit. We've got several young uh, Christians and those that uh, uh, might benefit from understanding a little more about uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer. And understand what goes on when you receive Christ as your Savior and all of a sudden you, you feel these promptings that you've never felt before. You feel convicted about being in places that you did not feel convicted about in the past. What is all that? Uh, what's, what's going on? What is the meaning of well, is God living inside of you and, and uh, reforming your attitude and, and uh, taking possession of, uh, of your soul and you uh, surrendering your old man over to the new man that he wants to create in you. And so I think it will be a lesson that all of us will benefit from. But uh, until that time, we're in Gospel of Mark, and we're moving through verse number 31 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. We're going to begin, begin reading this morning at uh, verse number 1. We're going to ask you if you would uh, be so kind to show reverence to the reading of God's Word by standing. And uh, I would ask that you take your Bibles, prefer your Bibles, not your Android or your iPhone. And follow along in with the Word of God as we read down to verse number 31. And then we will pray, and then you can be seated. And then uh, we will take a journey down through the message that the Spirit of God has impressed upon my heart. Amen. Verse number 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. And they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster of box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she break the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence. That would have been about a year's wages. And it had been given to the poor, probably those poor disciples that were thinking that. And they murmured against her, and Jesus said, Let her alone, trouble ye her. She hath wrought a good work on me, for ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, you may do them good, but me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever the gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Well, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they had heard it, they were, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how that he might conveniently betray him. This is Jesus' good friend. That's why you don't want to be called a Judas. And so the first day of unleavened bread, they killed the Passover, and his disciples said unto him, Well, where wilt thou that we go and prepare for that thou mayest eat the Passover? And so he sent forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there ye shall 
meet a man bearing a pitcher of water, follow him. And uh, wheresoever he shall go in, say to the good man of the house, the master saith, where is the guest chamber? Where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples. And he shall show thee a large upper room furnished and prepared, make ready for us. And his disciples went forth, and they came to the city, and they found he, and had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And it was evening, and he cometh with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say unto one by one, Is it I? Another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. And they were all doing that, of course. And then the son of man intended to go as it is written of him, but woe, woe unto him whom the son of man is betrayed. Good were good for him, uh, that man, if he had never been born. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread, blessed it, breaked it, gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will not drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And the Matthew's gospel says, with you in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them all, you shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, although it shall all, now watch this, although all shall be offended, yet will I not I. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee that this day, even at this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. In other words, three times. But he spake the more vehemently. If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. Heavenly Father, bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As uh, you can see, if you have the outline that was to be provided for you, that uh, this is the longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, having the longest of all the chapters, but by only three verses. And uh, we find that in this chapter, as well as in the other Gospels, uh, that uh, there is this plot by the Pharisees and the scribes to have Jesus crucified. And we find that it gives to us the preparation for the Passover. And then we have the prayer there at Gethsemane. And then we have the betrayal. And then we have the high priest and Jesus being brought before the high priest and being found guilty of blasphemy, for he, declaring himself to be God, they said was worthy of blasphemy, because he is a man who maketh himself to be God. I don't understand why the, uh, the um, Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons can't understand 
this, but somehow they don't get it. And then again, we get more into Peter's denial and the cock crows, and he's reminded of what he has done. And so if you could just buckle your seatbelts and, and let's not be moving about, hopefully everyone can kind of hold themselves until after I'm through preaching so I'm not distracted because I want to talk about something very important to you this morning. I believe the Lord kind of directed me to go away from the outline I just shared with you and to share with you uh, these three different uh, thoughts that you see there in your outline as we look at the Passover, as we look at God's providence in our lives, and as we look at um, our confidence that sometimes we have within ourselves, and Peter's not the only one guilty of saying, well, I will never, and then ends up doing what he said he would never do. We want to be careful about trusting in ourselves. And so the setting is quite obvious. It's during the time of the Passover. And we won't take time to go over to the book of Exodus. But in Exodus chapter 12, we read the story about the children of Israel. Now, <clears throat> coming to that final chapter where God is ready now to move them uh, out of Egypt on their journey to the promised land. As you remember, they were in Egypt for 430 years. And when they went down into Egypt, it was Jacob and uh, the 12 tribes and all of their children totaled, totaling a number of 70 as the Bible records. And as they went down, they were treated very friendly. They were given a portion of land in the land of Goshen and it was a very fertile land, and there they were able to raise their sheep, and, and, uh, and uh, they were very prosperous, and they enjoyed being down there in Egypt. And then eventually uh, the pharaoh that was friendly to them passed on, and uh, the pharaoh uh, that uh, they were under for many years became a very hard taskmaster. And after 430 years, the children of Israel uh, were treated very cruelly and their prayers were lifted up before the Lord and God heard their prayers and God raised up a deliverer and that deliverer was Moses. And we're not going to get into the story of Moses. You've read your Bible, you know who Moses is and how that he was raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. And he looked to his left, he looked to his right, and he killed an Egyptian for treating his people cruelly. And he was exiled for 40 years at the age of 40. And by the time he's 80 years old, uh, God meets with him on a mount called Mount Sinai, and God speaks to him through a burning bush. And God gives to him instructions to go to the children of Israel and to lead them out of Egypt into the land of promise. God told Moses that I want to make them a nation. And so here's what I need you to do. And so anyway, after some time, he is convinced. God demonstrates his power to Moses, and Moses goes. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and finally... His heart is hardened to the place to where now God hardens his heart. And uh, he just refuses to let the people go. And God has brought uh, these nine judgments upon them. And those nine judgments uh, are similar to what you read during the time of the tribulation period that will be upon the whole entire global planet. Egypt is a picture of the world and the judgment that is going to come. And so finally God brings his final judgment. The final judgment is that all the firstborn male of both uh, man and beast uh, will be destroyed when the, the angel of death passes over the land of Egypt. And that included all the firstborn male and the firstborn cattle of the children of Israel. But God said, here's what you need to do so that the angel of death does not destroy your firstborn. You're to pick out a lamb 
a lamb that is less than a year old, a lamb that is without spot, without blemish. It must be of the firstborn of the litter. And I want you to pick it out on, on Nisan the 10th. And uh, for four days, I want you to watch it, inspect it, make sure there are no poor parasites. And on the evening of Nisan the 14th, that's between uh, the month of March and April, according to our calendar, on Nisan the 14th, at the time that I have allotted to you at 6 in the evening, you are to kill the lamb. You're to cut his throat. You're to roast all of uh, the meat, including the entrails, and you're to eat all of it. And what you don't eat, the bones and the fur, is to be taken outside the camp and to be burned. You're to take the blood. You're to go into your home, and you're to take the blood from uh, the lamb that you have killed, one lamb for each household, one lamb for each family. And you're to put it on both sides of the door and on the top of the door. And everyone that's inside that house that is under the blood of that lamb, when the angel of the Lord passes over, and when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. And your life will be spared. Well, Jesus Christ is that Passover lamb. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus Christ coming down out of the wilderness of Judea in the early days of his ministry, he cried out with a lamentable voice, Behold the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus Christ is to be crucified. And so now we have, it is, as you can see, is one day before they offer up the Passover lamb. It's two days before they enter into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus Christ was offered up on Nisan the 14th, the day that they had prepared and made ready to offer up the Passover lamb. Jesus Christ was crucified before the lamb was killed and placed in a tomb. That evening, their Passover lamb was killed. But the, the Lamb of God had already been put to death. The Lamb of God on Nisan the 14th was put in the tomb. And uh, when the day of unleavened bread began, Jesus Christ was in the tomb resting. That would have been on Nisan the 15th. That would have been on a Thursday. He was in that tomb on Nisan the 16th. That would have been on a Friday. On Nisan the 17th, that would have been on a Saturday. He rose on Nisan the 18th, early Sunday morning. It is believed that Jesus Christ rose after being in the tomb for three and a half days. Three full days, three full nights, and a part of a day. We base that not upon the Hebrew calendar, but we base it upon the calendar that God had set forth when he created the heavens and the earth. On the first day, he numbered that day, beginning with the evening and the morning being the first day. The second day, the evening and the morning was the second day. The, the word the gives reference to the definite article in giving us the understanding that these are 24-hour days. They're not millennial days. Meaning that the day began at midnight and ended the following midnight. The evening at midnight, the morning at midnight, just as our calendar does, based on the solar calendar. And so that would give Jesus Christ three and a half days in the tomb, Three and a half days is a half a week. He was being prepared for his crucifixion and his burial for the first part of that week. God has a very, very, uh, uh, very, I might say, uh, uh, very manipulative uh, concern with numbers that he uses. Uh, three and a half into a week, like, we know Daniel's 70th week. We have three and a half years 
and the Antichrist goes into the temple and he creates what is called the abomination. And then desolation for three and a half years comes upon the whole earth and the darkness of God's wrath is spread upon the earth. Jesus Christ was on the cross and at noonday darkness came upon the earth and uh, at three o'clock that afternoon Jesus Christ gave up the ghost and he gave up his own spirit before the Lord. He took his life. They didn't take his life from him. And he was taken from the cross and he was buried. All of these are very important for us to understand. It's important for us to understand because when we go over to Leviticus chapter 23, we understand that God had seven feast days. The first feast day was the feast day called a Sabbath. It was a high Sabbath. There were two high Sabbaths before the low Sabbath of Saturday was come. Jesus Christ was in the tomb on all three Sabbaths. He was there in the Sabbath of the high day of Passover. He was in the grave on the high day of the Passover of unleavened bread. And then he was in the Sabbath day. All those are days of rest. Christ was now resting from atoning our sins. Christ was now resting from purging all the sin from our lives as they purged the leaven. And now he is resting from his work. And the first day of the week, the Bible makes it very clear, that was the day in which they celebrated the, the gleanings that would come from the first harvest. It was called the first fruits. When they entered into the land, according to Leviticus chapter 23, we read in verse number 6 through 8, when you enter into the land, two days after unleavened bread feast day of the Sabbath, you are to have a, another feast day where you celebrate your first fruits. Jesus Christ was risen on the day they celebrated the first fruits because he is the first to be risen from the dead which means there's going to come a much larger harvest later. All of this is a wonderful picture of our salvation. Christ came to be the Lamb of God that takes away our sins. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is applied over our bodies. God no longer sees our sins because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told over in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He gives us greater detail if you'll take your Bibles, and I hope you will, and turn over to the book of Hebrews, and notice in verse number 13 of Hebrews chapter 9. In verse number 9 of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 13, excuse me, we read, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of ashes and of heifers, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify to the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Remember Jesus Christ when he was there with them in that upper room, he took the grape juice and he said, this is going to symbolize my blood that's going to be poured out for your sins. This is a symbol of my blood, which is the New Testament. The New Testament is what we understand God's new covenant. The Old Testament is what we understand the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is only a picture of the New Covenant. The Old Covenant could never wash our sins away. It was only a figure or a picture of what is to come. Every time the high priest went into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the Lamb, it was only a picture of the Lamb of God. And the high priest was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was only a figure. 
And the people by faith would do this, believing that one day God would provide a perfect priest that would offer up a perfect sacrifice. And that perfect sacrifice would be the very Lamb of God, and that priest would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And the covenant which would be established through that which had been put to death would be raised up so the covenant could be established. And so we read in verse number 15 again, For this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressors, that means those who have violated God's laws, they were under the First Testament. In other words, we were all guilty under sin because under the Old Covenant, the Bible says that if you commit sin, you will die. And so... <clears throat> And they were under the first testament that they that are called might receive the promise of eternal, eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Wherefore, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. So we read in verse number 20, if you'll look over there. Therefore, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he purified with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged. Without blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of these things in heaven should be purified. With these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us or for you. That's why we read over in 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sins. And in verse number 9, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from our sins. But we must understand that we're sinners. No one can stand before God and say that I have not sinned. God says you're a liar for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that once we are saved, if we sin, we have a propitiator. We have one who can propitiate our sins. The word propitiation means one who can cover our sins, who can continually offer up an atonement for our sins. And that is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ does, it continually cleanses your sins. It is efficacious. It continues to wash your sins past present and future that's why he said in first john chapter 2 and verse number 2 my little children i write unto you that you sin not but if any man sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous who is the propitiation for our sins and not only for our sins but for the sins of the whole world you see not only is his sins efficacious and powerful and enduring to wash your sins past, present, and future. But His blood is also able to cleanse the sins of the whole world if the world will just simply come to Jesus. I get so frustrated with those that do not believe in eternal redemption. I heard a preacher the other day say, well, there are those people out there that believe in the damnable doctrine of eternal security. Well, excuse me, I don't believe in eternal security. I believe in eternal salvation. And that eternal salvation comes from the Word of God. And along with that eternal salvation, there is eternal redemption. There is eternal sanctification. 
Therefore, I am glorified forever by the eternal redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, I assume that I am secure because of what he has done eternally. If I have eternal redemption today, then I have it tomorrow. What do I have to do to lose that redemption? What sin would I have to commit that would stop the washing and stop the cleansing? They say, oh, there you go. That gives them a license to sin. No, it doesn't. Because we understand we have a Heavenly Father that whips His children who sin. And He whips them hard. And sometimes He whips them so hard He brings them home. And so there is suffering and there are consequences that this old fleshly body must experience because of sin. So no, we don't teach for a license of sin. We just simply believe when the Holy Spirit takes residence in your life, you are sealed until the day of redemption. And therefore, when Jesus Christ took the cup and he said, this is the blood of my New Testament, it goes far deeper than you could ever imagine. There is so much there. We could, we could spend the next three weeks talking about what Jesus Christ is doing in redeeming you from your sins and still would not have enough time. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ must, though, be applied. I cannot do it for you. You have to apply the blood. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You have to acknowledge that your sins are so wicked and so ungodly and your transgressions are so deep that it would send you to an eternal hell where you'll burn forever and ever. But Jesus Christ, in seeing the severity of your lost condition, was willing to come into this world and pay a horrendous price to deliver you from the plight of your horrible lost condition. So he went to the cross and he died for your sins so that you might have eternal life. There's nothing that you can do other than just simply receive it. Amen. All you must do is just simply understand that you're a sinner, Christ has paid the price, and you must be willing to receive it. The moment you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to come into your heart, can I help you, ma'am? Oh, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, there we are. I'm sorry. I get. Uh, uh, I want my attention drawn toward the Word of God. So, if you'll just continue to look here. Where was I? Let me move to something else here. The providence of God. You see, God knows every one of us. There's not a person here that God does not know. And God knows every one of us to the nth degree. He knew you because he created you. He designed you. You are marvelously, you are miraculously and marvelously made. Uh, man did not discover the DNA. Now I'm going to just uh, chase a little rabbit here. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalms 139, just for a moment here. In Psalms 139, we read about God's marvelous omniscience. God's omniscience and God's providence is not based on predestination, as some teach, but is based upon His omniscience and what God knows. We call it foreknowledge. And God's foreknowledge <clears throat> goes so far beyond what we could ever comprehend uh, that our little finite minds could never in any way measure up to any kind of understanding to where we could equate uh, of any knowledge of how much God knows. But God gives us a sample of what He knows. We see this in Psalms 139. The psalmist writes, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsettings and my uprisings. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. 
thou compassed my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word in my tongue, but, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain it. Neither can any man obtain it. It goes far beyond anything that we could ever comprehend. Notice in verse number 12, he says, Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lower parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance, and yet being unperfect, in other words, an embryo, nothing more than just a seed and an ovary, and somehow God brought life as the seed and the ovary came together. And man can call that tissue, and man can call that nothing more than just a fetal mass of nothing. It, but God says that when that took place, when you were unperfect, when you were without form, in the book all the members were written, which is in a continuance, they were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them, how precious. In other words, when you were a tiny embryo, God decided in what they call nothing more than fetal tissue, what the color of your eyes would be, what the height of your stature would be. God had determined everything about you. It was all written and it was coated within that little tiny piece of material that they call tissue. But God calls it life. And in that life was a cell, and in that cell is DNA. And there's a map there, a coded map that God placed there. And God knew from the beginning of time exactly when you would be born, your height, your stature, how you would come into this world. I don't care how you came into this world. God knew it because God is omniscient. Nothing comes to God by accident. Nothing is coincidental. There is no unwanted child that comes into this world. There's no child that comes into this world that God doesn't know. I don't care how that child is conceived. God knows about it. And God cares for us. That is the knowledge and that is the understanding that God has toward us. We are most precious. Why? Because we were created in His image and in His likeness. And the devil knows that. You see, God has a body too. And man was created in the image of God's likeness. And the body that God has, has already been revealed to us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, for it is written of me, and thou hast prepared for him a body. And that body went to a cross and was offered up for your sins. That body was taken, put in a tomb. But death could not hold that body in the tomb. God raised up his own body. And now there is a man in heaven, the man Christ Jesus. And one day we are going to enter into heaven and we're going to see him as he is and we are going to be as he is. And we are still be going to be called men in heaven. The word man will never change. Man will live forever because God created us in his image and his likeness. There's nothing else out there in the creative world that God has created that compares to the image of man. Because it's in God's likeness. It's in God's image. And the devil knows that. He sets out to attack it. And therefore, we not, must understand how much God cares for us when we think about the providence of God.
when we reel about, understand how God is all-knowing. God is all-understanding. God is all-wisdom. God said of Jeremiah, He said, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee to be a prophet unto the nations. God has a calling and God has a life for you. But you must understand that God did not create you without a will. You are a free moral agent, just like God. God created you to make your own choices. And God has given you the opportunity to make the choices that He has set forth. He has a plan for you, but the devil also has a plan for you. His plan is a life of misery and a life of sorrow and a life of destruction. And oh, you can say, I don't believe in the devil. And oh, he'd love for you to believe like that. But God also has a plan for you. And God wants to bring you to that place to where you can prosper and you can live an abundant life and you can be filled with the blessings of God and you can live under the joy of the Lord. But that can only happen when you allow God to live in your life. So Jesus Christ, who is also all-knowing, He demonstrated that time and time again. As we saw here in this passage of Scripture, we see the providence of God, God caring and God concerned for humanity and God knowing what the future holds and God telling them what the future holds. God looking at every step of His life. Jesus Christ, when He was here upon this world, He pondered those things in His heart. He knew that Gethsemane was coming. He knew that Calvary was coming. But He also knew that there was a resurrection coming. He also knew that the job would be finished. He knew that he would return back to his Father. And he knew that he would spend eternity in heaven. And so based on that glorious hope, he was willing to come into this world and suffer for you and me. He was not a fatalist. He understood that there was a glorious outcome. And he demonstrated that all through the Gospels, we can see the providence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future that He looks into. And He laid it all out for us and He has warned us of what is going to come. And it will come because He knows it will come. He sees past, present, and future because with God, time does not exist. And so the moment you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the providence of the Spirit of God takes residence in your heart and in your life. God knows what steps He wants to lead you in, but you must be willing to allow Him to lead you in that, in that walk. And so often we become rebellious. We say that we believe in God. We say that we have the Holy Spirit living within us, but we're not willing to be led by the Spirit of God. If God knows more about my future and God knows more about my life and God knows more about the pitfalls that I'm about to fall into, then I want God to direct me. I want God to lead my steps. The Bible says so much about the Holy Spirit leading our lives and the Holy Spirit convicting us and prompting us. The moment you receive Christ into your heart, the Holy Spirit takes residence into your life. The Spirit of God comes into your body the Spirit of God seals your soul until the day of redemption. In 1 John chapter 3, the Bible says we cannot sin because we are no longer living in sin. The Holy Spirit is living inside of us. The Holy Spirit has taken your soul and the Holy Spirit has sealed your soul. The only thing that can sin in your life is this whole ungodly flesh. It has not been redeemed. It has not been saved. It's waiting its day of glorification. And so every day we wrestle with the flesh. Every day we have to fight with the flesh. The old flesh wants to violate the laws of God. The old flesh wants to lust. The old flesh wants to hate. The old flesh wants to do things that are contrary to the law of God. But we have the Spirit of God that lives within us that has sealed our soul. And we can have the power and we can have the ability and we can be liberated by the flesh and the power to say no to the flesh. I tell you, there's nothing more liberating to say no to an alcoholic drink early on a 
Monday morning or Tuesday morning and every morning of the week, the old flesh used to grab a hold of Jim Nolan and I'd wake up every morning. It would be about 6 o'clock and I would be shaken. I, there would be, my wife wouldn't allow no liquor in the house and I knew that and I respected her and to have a, a, a fairly decent marriage. Uh, I would uh, drink outside of the home. So as soon as uh, Calvary uh, liquor store opened up or Cavalier liquor store would open up, I would be down there early that morning at 7 o'clock, as soon as they open up, to buy my first pint of whiskey. And I would sip on that, and sometime in the afternoon, I'd buy me another pint. That went on every day for about three years. You're drinking a fifth of whiskey every day, you're going to become an alcoholic. And to maintain some, to maintain some degree of sobriety, I was dropping bennies. And at night, so that I could sleep, I was dropping reds. So I was taking the amphetamines, the barbiturates, and drinking the alcohol. And on the weekends, I'd party with my friends. My wife, she hated every moment of that lifestyle. That went on for more than three years. I was raised in an alcoholic family. I was saved at the age of 19, but I didn't stay right with the Lord for about three Months later, I started backsliding, and I went back to the old lifestyle. But I was never happy. I was never comfortable. I knew that what I was doing was wrong. I was miserable. I hated myself. I despised what I was doing. But I was under such strong addiction. I was chained to the addiction to where I became a slave to the addiction. I wanted to be set free, but I knew that I couldn't be set free, so I began to contemplating taking my life. And one night I decided that I would take my life. And finally a small, still voice behind the back seat of the car while I was driving as fast as that old Pontiac would take me, wanting to crash it into the eucalyptus tree, the Holy Spirit said, Jim, give me your life, I'll help you. And so finally I came to that place to where I said, okay, Lord. And I went home and I got on my knees. And interesting enough, when I came home, my brother David was playing a song on the record player. Doug Oldham singing the song, The King is Coming. And I was there on my knees weeping with a glass of vodka in my right hand and a cigarette in my left hand saying, Lord, I don't know that I can do this, but Lord, I know you can. Please help me. And all of a sudden, I felt the touch of God. And I'm here to tell you, the Holy Spirit took control of my life. And from that day forward, by the grace of God, I have sought to be led by the Spirit of God. God can do it for you. You have something powerful living inside of you if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But you have to be willing to be led by the Spirit. The Apostle Paul made it very clear in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And as I began to allow God to lead in my life, no longer did I doubt that I was no longer a child of God. There were times in my backslidden condition that I would cry out and say, God, if I'm not saved, please save me. I would pray that prayer a hundred times. But once I started to allow God to lead in my life, the doubt went away. God began to secure my heart and soul with the assurance that He was my Heavenly Father. You see, you don't know until you get to that place where you have a real live confrontation with God. You don't really know Him until you have met Him. And I have met him. And I'm telling you that he is real. I'm telling you that when your greatest need, he is there. I'm telling you, I don't care how low you go. Once you cry out to God, believing that God is there and God cares and God wants to help, God will reach down and he will lift you up. We are told over in Romans chapter 8, verse number 16, that the Spirit itself will bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And I tell you, after that episode that I just got through sharing with you, there have been many times I'd get along with God and I'd say, Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for assuring me that you're my Heavenly Father. Have you ever had that moment 
where you get along with God and you just simply want to hug Him. You feel that He's there. You can't see Him. You can't hear Him. But somehow you can sense that He's in your life and you want to embrace Him and you want Him to know that you love Him and you sense in your heart that tremendous love that only God can put in your heart. That God has put something there that you never had before. How He seeks to lead you. The Spirit of God began to work within my heart. The Bible makes it very clear over in John chapter 16 and verse number 13 that the Spirit of truth has come and He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, He will speak and He will show you things to come and He shall glorify Me and He will receive of Mine and He will show it unto you. And so... I came to that place in my life to where I began to allow God to speak to me. God, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, wherever you want me to live, I'm yours, God. I belong to you. I'm no longer my own. And God began to speak to this old country boy's heart that couldn't even use this king language in a proper way. I want you to be a preacher. I want you to surrender to the ministry. I have a place that I want you to go. I said, Lord, I don't know that I can do that, but God said, I'll do it through you. And God began to work in my life, and God pulled me out of the business that we were in, and God planted my feet in a Bible college, and God began to direct me to the great northwest. And I said, Lord, I don't know that I can do that. But God said, no, I will lead you. And God led us every step of the way. We stepped out by faith. We chose a city. We chose an area. We chose the neighborhood. We began to knock doors. We just simply let God lead us. A church was built. More churches were built. Missionaries have been sent out. I look back at my life. I can see the leading of God in my life. Can you look back at your life and say, God has led me every step of the way. God has used me. God has used me in my home. God has used me in my marriage. God has used me in my Christian walk with Him. Can you say that? Is the Spirit of God living in your life? Is an omnipotent, all-knowing God, is He sovereign in your life? Can He have His will and way in your life? Let me just say this in closing. Failure. I've been down that road. Peter said, although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Jesus said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto thee, that this day, even this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But, oh, Peter, oh, he spake to more vehemently. I should die with thee. I will not deny thee. Peter went on to say in the Gospel of Matthew, I will never leave thee. I will never be offended at thee. Oh, we need to be careful that we never get to that place. You see, when I trusted Christ as my Savior, I made some promises. I'll never drink again. I'll never do this again. I'll never do that again. Oh, I had a honeymoon experience that lasted for about three months. And then I went through three years of living a hellish life. Moving into a darkness of despair. When you're living in an addiction of alcohol and drugs, Depression comes over you in such a way that it almost becomes manic. And the only way that you know to get out of the depression is to drink more alcohol and take more drugs. And that relieves it for a few hours and then the depression comes back. And you find yourself in a horrible deep ditch. Living in regret and living in sorrow but no way to get out. When I came to my senses and I realized that only Jesus Christ can help me, I came to that understanding that, God, I can't, but you can. You see, when, when we're living for the flesh, we get to that place to where we actually think, well, you know, I'll never do what they'll do, what they're doing. 
I'll never go where he's gone. I'll never do that in my home. I'll never look at that material. I'll never betray the church, or I'll never betray my marriage like they have. And we come to that place to where we think we're above other people. And that's where Peter was. The apostle James says, you ought to say the Lord will we shall live or do this. He went on to say, all rejoicing is evil when we come to that place to where we can say, I will never. In fact, uh, the apostle Paul called it vainglory. We are told over in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 3 that this is vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. When we get to the place to where we think we can serve God better than other people, and we can be faithful better than those people, and we can look at the homeless and say, I'll never be like that. That's vainglory. And the, the apostle James made it very clear that when we come to that place, this is, re, this is an evil thought. You see, we're putting confidence in the arm of flesh. It's not about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about you. When I came to that place to where I realized I can, I came to that place to where I realized, hey, the flesh will let me down. As long as I'm trusting in Jim Nolan, I'm not going anywhere. Jim Nolan can't save his marriage. Jim Nolan can't live for the Lord. Jim Nolan can't obey God. Jim Nolan can't do nothing that's pleasing unto God. God must do it through Jim Nolan. I remember as a young preacher, I would counsel with young people, and I hadn't come to that truth fully but down through the years, God began to teach me. People would come and say, how do I overcome bitterness? And I would give them seven steps of overcoming bitterness. Finally, I realized there's only one step. You can't overcome bitterness. You can't overcome your hate. You can't overcome your addiction. No, you can't do it, but the Lord Jesus Christ can. He is the can-do Savior. I can do all things through Christ which strengthened me. When we get to that place where we deflect all of our praise over to Him and we deflect all of our trust over to Him and we say, Lord, I can't do this, but I know You can do it through me and we trust in Him with all of our heart and we lean not unto our own understanding, but in all of our ways we acknowledge Him. And then He begins to direct our steps. I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. But I know there's a whole world out there that's suffering. I know that the homeless population continues to grow. I know that there's a drug addiction, not much worse than this pandemic. There's a meth addiction out there. There's an alcohol addiction out there. There's a cocaine and crack addiction out there. Heroin is flooding this country through the borders unlike anything we've ever seen in the past. And so it is out there, and it's available, and people that are street smart know how to get it every minute of the day. We have a son that's been struggling with it, and right now he's going through U-turn. I don't care where you go, what city he ends up, in five minutes he knows how to get a hold of just about any type of drug he wants to get a hold of. It is out there. And there's no way that you can take them out of the world. Somehow, you've got to get Jesus into them. You've got to get the world of God into them. And then He somehow brings them out of the world. Are you trusting in Jesus? We must come to that place to where we understand that God is a God that knows all about us. We're not fooling God. And we can come to the place to where we are fully transparent with God and just simply say, Lord, I don't want to end up like that. I see where other people have gone, and I know that I could end up being in that place. The worst nightmare is to end up homeless, hooked on crack or crystal meth, living in a tent under a bridge or something like that. And yet there are millions of people in that condition right now. And so many people, we look at them, we, we turn our nose up at them, but we don't know what tomorrow may hold. There may come a crash to our economy unlike anything that we've ever seen. We may find that 90% of this country is now jobless. There's not enough food to feed the people of America. We don't know. We, we don't know. There are enemies out there right now that want to bring America down. 
And God has warned us that no nation can stand unless God stands with them. Any nation that will forget God will be turned into hell. America is on a dangerous pathway. That's why we need to pray for our country. God help us to understand it's only by the grace of God that we are where we're at. It's only by the grace of God. You sit here this morning with your bellies full looking forward to a good lunch, going to a home with a roof over your head, living with the comforts that God has provided, knowing that the Spirit of God lives within your heart, but you don't know what tomorrow may bring. It's only by the grace of God that we are what we are. So we need to start living by putting our trust and our faith in an omnipotent, all-knowing God, allowing Him to guide each step of our life with every head bowed. Excuse me. So for being so emphatic about having your attention drawn toward what I was saying this morning, I, I don't mean to offend anyone, but I will say this. For some reason, God, with what I was preparing yesterday and putting this message together and the thoughts that were running through my heart this morning, for some reason, I felt so compelled. I'm, God put such a passion in my heart for what I'm sharing with you. I have to tell you that that's not Jim Nolan. That's something that God is doing in my heart. I don't know what he's doing in your heart, but I honestly believe, and I'm not in any way trying to sound spiritually above anybody. I'm just simply saying that I believe God has burdened my heart in such a way to warn you. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know who it is that needs to hear this message. But I've struggled with this message. I'm concerned for what tomorrow holds for us. I know that our security does not lie within ourselves, but it does not lie within this nation. But it's in our walk with the Lord. James said, draw nigh to me and I will draw nigh to you. If we want to resist the devil, if we want him to flee from us, there has to be a brokenness. There has to be some contrition. A broken and contrite heart, God says, I no wise will despise. If there's been ever a time that God's people need to humble themselves and cry out and ask for God to intervene and God to bring deliverance now, I'm concerned for what tomorrow holds for our children and our grandchildren. So many things have rapidly changed in the last few months. Cancel culture is on the verge of moving forward in a way unlike anything we've ever seen before. They want to cancel out Christianity as we know it. They want to cancel out the kind of preaching that you're hearing this morning that's being preached in different places across this country. And there's a whole new movement. It's an ungodly, immoral movement. They're brainwashing our children in believing that, that they can transcend from one gender to another gender. And they need to allow their minds the opportunity to think about what gender they would like to be comfortable in. All of this is being taught in our public schools. If you're of a certain race, you need to understand that maybe you're more prejudiced than other people. And if you don't acknowledge it, then you have a serious problem. We are living in unusual days and times. Young people spitting in the faces of police officers, burning down buildings, and our politicians saying it's okay 
don't charge them, putting up money to make sure they're bailed out of jail, while people who stand for righteousness go to prison. Friend, if you don't think bad days are coming, then you're not paying attention to the times that we're in. I believe rapture is right around the corner. Are you faithfully living for God? Do you have in your heart and your mind the assurance of knowing that you're going to spend eternity with Jesus? Is your Christian walk pleasing unto Him? Do you, in your heart and mind, do you have the assurance and the confidence of knowing that you are walking in the Spirit and you are led by the Spirit? Has God mapped out a plan for your life and have you accepted that plan and are you willing to yield to it? These are some questions that the Lord has brought to my mind as I was preparing. This morning I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm going to ask with heads bowed as we stand together.